IEQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. Yes, the rules have changed today. Good day wherever you're listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio, for Friday, February 27, 2009. My name is Cliff Slotnick, or the Z-Man. Radio Joe Hughes is at the IAQA convention in Fort Worth, Texas. Our wingman's here, Chris Boisel's at the controls. Sitting in Radio Joe's chair is IAQ Radio intern, the lovely environmental Annie Ann Koalecki. Thank you, Cliff, and good afternoon, everybody. Today's segments include the microband trivia question, an interview with our guest Jim Pulse or, or Jim Pearson, uh, the roundup. Radio Joe and I, with the wingman's help, have been working on the IAQRadio.com website, adding to the site and blog every week after the show. We've also improved the invitation and news amount announcement from IQ Radio and the IQ Training Institute. First, we'd like to thank our sponsors. Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IEQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising informational available at ieconnections.com. Dry Ease Products, providing equipment for drying water damaged homes and buildings. Dry Ease is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at jondon.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their products and services. To contact the show by phone, simply call 724-444-7444 and enter our show ID number, which is 1547. Press 1 and simply join the show. You can also download the show by going to our website, www.ieqradio.com, and then following the link that says go to the show, or you can get the show from iTunes. You can also get your IICRC continuing education credits or IAQ council renewal credits by emailing Radio Joe and requesting a quiz. Radio Joe's email is joe.use at iaqtraining.com. To make suggestions, special requests, or ask technical questions, you can either email Radio Joe or the Z-Man at Cliff. Zlotnick at unsmoke.com. Last but not least, please visit the IEQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the IEQ Training You Trust at iaqtraining.com.
thanks and congratulations go out to Chad Seams of Shive Hattery Company in Iowa City, Iowa, for cleaning up several past uh, microband trivia questions. Remember, you can win a cool prize by correctly answering a microband trivia question, and the good news is a still few still remain unanswered. It's easy to submit an answer for the trivia question. Simply go to the iaqradio.com website, obtain my email address there, and email your answer to me. The microband trivia question for Friday, February 27, 2009. The term derived from Spanish meaning straight is a widespread and long-lived violent convectively induced straight-line windstorm that is associated with a fast-moving band of severe thunderstorms, usually taking the form of a bow echo. A warm-weather phenomenon, they mostly occur in summer, especially July in the northern hemisphere, a series of which occurred from July 11th through July 15, 1995 in Montana. This weather event is among the most notable weather events that occurred during the 20th century. Provide the name of the term by which this phenomena is known. Okay, this afternoon's guest, Jim Pearson, CMH. Jim Pearson is the president and chief executive officer of AmeriClean and has operated this full-service restoration business in Billings, Montana for nearly 30 years. He is a certified mechanical hygienist specializing in indoor air quality issues such as restoring contaminated HVAC systems, mold remediation, allergens, and chemical sensitivities in the built environment. Throughout the 1980s and early 1990s, Jim developed and supported over 100 AmeriClean franchises across the United States. He served seven years as director, treasurer, and two-time secretary of the Association of Specialists in Cleaning and Restoration International, ASCR, now called the Restoration Industry Association. He also served as their Environmental Council's vice chair. He is a past president of the Mechanical Systems Hygiene Institute, MSHI, and past chairman of the Certification Committee for the ASCR C3 Educational Foundation. A frequent speaker at international industry conventions, Jim has authored nearly two dozen articles published in Cleaning and Restoration Magazine and Restoration and Remediation Magazine. He has appeared in the insurance industry's publication Claims Magazine and has a number of other local and national publications and is extensively quoted in a new book, Mold, The War Within, available at Amazon.com. Mr. Pearson is currently the chairman of the IICRC S520 Standard Writing Consensus Body, who recently published the world's first and only ANSI Certified Standard and Reference Guide for Professional Mold Remediation. Jim is also a standards writer for the Indoor Environmental Standards Organization, IESO. He also serves on the board of directors of the Low Moisture Carpet Cleaners Association and serves as the organization's assistant vice president for technical issues. Good afternoon, Jim. Thank you for joining us on IAQ Radio. We've got some intro music for you. Montana. My father gave me Montana. No matter where I go. When I look inside, I see Montana. 
Good afternoon, Jim. Or, well, good morning. Hi. Hi, good morning, actually, to you. Uh, yes. Got a question here. Why and how did you enter the cleaning and disaster restoration field? Well, I'll tell you, first of all, I'd like to thank you for having me on the show. This is, this is really cool, and yeah, I'm sitting here in Montana, and it's snowy, but it's, it's a wonderful place to live. Um, actually, when I was about 13, um, I was as dumb a kid as I suppose anybody is sometimes. I started our garage on fire and burned it off our house. <laughs> and uh, I ended up getting pretty badly burned in it. And, I, you know, I felt kind of, well, I felt really bad about it. And um, I, I kind of have a, uh, I, I can relate to the feeling of loss and I kind of want to make things better, want to help people in that same situation. So I think that's kind of how I got started in it. And then my brother had a great deal to do with it, too, and I'll get into that a little bit later. You know, get her done is a southern saying. What is your company's motto, Jim? Well, you know, uh, somebody had said you were going to you were going to mention that, and then get her done is kind of a kind of a fun thing to say. I think, uh, well, our company in particular has several. After all these years, uh, we we picked up one several years ago, and it's Wheaton Doer. We can spelled do it. W-E- yeah. Well, it's actually spelled W E apostrophe N D O E R, and that's kind of a rancher slang from the '40s. It's a can-do attitude type thing that they they developed. A couple other ones are get in, get done, and get out. Uh, and uh, <laughs> I, I think that the one I really try to stress to employees is to give more in value than we take in dollars, that type of thing. And I suppose the last one is if we're not having fun, we're not going to do it. We we always wanted this business to to be rewarding and and to be fun. So. And we've stuck pretty much to that. I think mine always was getting paid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, get the money. <laughs> uh, Jim, what are the keys to success in working in a small business market? Hmm. Hmm. Well, that's a good question. Um, uh, in a smaller area like this, we've got like 120 or 30,000 people in a 150-mile radius. So we, you got to go some. I think one of the keys is to be capable uh, in, in all sorts of things because you kind of have to be all things to all people. Um, but primarily, uh, it isn't throwing money at marketing. It, it's more about your reputation, your honesty, your integrity, referrals, you know, that type of thing, who you know, networking, um, you know, business organizations, things like that. Uh, real important because it seems like everybody knows somebody that knows somebody else that knows you type of thing up here. So I think it's real important to just be a good, honest business person and, and do the best you can helping people, and, and the word will spread. I guess you really don't have a transient, transient population, do you, that people just kind of stay there? Well, yeah. Uh, we're growing by about, we have a net gain of 1,200 people a year. <laughs> and uh, that would be about 3,000 move in and uh, 4,200 move out type of thing. And so it's it's a pretty small numbers. People who are here are generally here uh, because they want to be. They want to escape or go to the good country. And and uh, we have co- a lot of commerce around here as far as we have a good hospital system and uh, agricultural. And we have energy with the oil and the, and the coal. Uh, lots of, of a variety of industries here. So, yeah, it's pretty real stable, real stable. Now, I remember looking at the demographics there, and I'm not sure whether or not it's changed since the early 90s, but I think at that time there were, there was less than 700,000 people in the entire state. Is it still like that? Uh, 
boy, I've got a joke, but I'm not going to tell that one. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, it is. It it it, it, it runs oh seven to eight hundred thousand. It's increasing slightly, as is everywhere. And of course, there's building going on all over. And it seems like, well, nowadays there isn't, but uh, um, it's it's uh, it's the fourth largest landmass as far as states go in the country, and we have uh, yeah less than a million people, uh, one of the smaller populations. So you 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 feel more important up here. You can look for 100 miles and not see anybody else, and that's kind of cool. You know, I, I think speaking of, uh, you know, living in the, you know, living out in the country, you've really gotten involved a lot with industry volunteerism and industry service. You know, what prompted that? And what organizations have you belonged to and do you belong to now? Well, you know, I I don't know if it's because it's, it's kind of rural and I, I yearn to be connected because I'm out here and and what some would say is the middle of nowhere. I'm actually at the center of the country, but uh, I think that that maybe that's a reason, one of the reasons why I uh, am involved. But yeah, I think it all started back when franchising. Uh, we were franchising, and our goal was to help businesses uh, open, operate, and be successful. And uh, in doing so, I just kind of transferred that when we stopped franchising into um, service to the industry in general. Um, I'm a member, of course, of uh, RIA, the Restoration Industry Association, and the IICRC, Institute of Inspection, Cleaning, and Restoration Certification. Notice I don't want the police after me for the act. Right, I heard you right. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, IAQA, Indoor Quality Association, and uh, AIHA, American Industrial Hygiene Association. So, yeah, I, I, I try, and, try and stay hooked up, you know. Has industry involvement been beneficial to your business? Here's one that's going to probably surprise you. Yes and no. Uh, a lot of people say, oh, yeah, oh, I'd be nothing without the industry and all that. Well, that is kind of true. But let, let me tell you, it's been very beneficial to me personally in the form of education, networking, credibility, you know, of course, the feeling of being a part of something bigger. And, and I'll tell you, anybody, uh, membership in any organization nearly always helps a business owner. But I do have to admit that my service as a volunteer has been expensive. Um, you've got your travel costs and time away from the business. But, <clears throat> you know, you got to think about what goes on when you're not watching your business. And, and that's my fault. Um, this old gal has gone off the track several times over the years because of my inattention. But we're back on track now and looking forward to the future. So th there are some downsides to not paying attention to, to what you're supposed to be doing. You know, you mentioned franchising, and, you know, let's kind of spend a couple of minutes uh, talking about that business model. You know, what motivated you to franchise your business concept or your business model? Well, you know, uh, you know, I'm glad that we're talking about this uh, because franchising is, uh, I think, a wonderful business format for many, many things. Obviously, McDonald's and all the rest of them wouldn't be so successful if it weren't for that, that quality control and process. But I'd just gotten back from Vietnam, and my brother, Bob, had started a small carpet cleaning business here in Montana. And he was using a new liquid dry cleaning process that, that he'd kind of helped develop. Mm -hmm. And it was pretty popular, so he trained, uh, trained up his service reps and put them in company stores across the state. Uh, we had four or five, or he had four or five of them, I guess. And they weren't doing well for a number of reasons. It's, it's pretty difficult to, to take a 
a laborer and turn them into a manager. So I joined him, and we, we decided that we would develop a franchise system. And the thinking was, if an owner had an investment in his own business, he'd take a lot uh, more care of it, you know, and he'd, he'd care a lot more if he made money and made profit. So it did work. It worked well for us. I mean, it was wonderful. We had 15 years of franchising with zero lawsuits, which I guess is some kind of record in the franchising industry. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody was happy uh, that, that we were there to support them and but a lot of successful business owners out there. So it was it was a, a real good uh, tenure in the course. Uh, well, I tell you, oh, we, we did it through the 80s, all of the 80s and halfway through the 90s. And um, I, t- I have to tell you, you'd ask about lessons. I think uh, there were too many to count. Uh, we had dozens of franchises, and it seemed like we were always having to come up with some kind of solution to, uh, you know, the regular service business challenges that we all face. But... We figured we earned like five years' worth of experiences every month that went by because they were always calling with some new challenge type of thing. So we learned very quickly uh, and, and had to be leading them all the time. So we developed lots of different service lines. I mean, everything from acoustical ceiling cleaning to, to, to vinyl cleaning to just about anything that came along. We'd look into it and see if they were interested in getting into it. So, yeah, I, I enjoyed the franchising part of it. It, it was pretty cool. And now if you look on a search uh, site for AmeriQueens, you see them all over the place. And I, 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 I like that. I think that's wonderful. Yeah, it gives you a pretty good feeling, I think, inside that you've helped you know, people in their success. And uh, I, I, I suspect it can be a thankless job uh, as well. And you probably get a phone call regardless of what you did for them yesterday or the day before in years past. I think they always ask you the question, uh, or they wake up every morning and what have you done for me lately? <laughs> you Boy, know, like that, today. That's exactly right. Uh, you know, they're they're sick horse. We we collected the royalty check based on their gross sales weekly, right. and we did their books for them and everything. And and you bet, uh, you know, every week it, they were writing that check, and, and so we, we had to stay ahead of them with coming up with new things all the time and and all of that. And it it can be thankless, and it was. But it, I think you know, looking back overall, it was a, it was a great great. Uh, run that we had doing that and we felt good and and most of them had a, a real good bottom line so we're, we're pretty happy about the, the overall results you know you're kind of in, in the middle of the country and uh you know you see these forest fires a lot of times that'll happen in in california and mudslides and then in the east coast and south they have uh, weather related hurricane events and, and storms uh, when these catastrophes occur uh, oftentimes, people in the restoration business, you know, particularly when their business might be a little bit slow, you know, they yearn to make big bucks by storm chasing. And uh, you know, have you ever done any of that? Done any cat work? Oh yeah, yeah. Actually, um, it's a it's a surprise to a lot of people here in Montana that we actually do that type of thing. <laughs> but um, I, I know what you're thinking. You think there's big money out there, and there can be. But there's no pot of gold into the rainbow anywhere. You got to work for it, and that is the thinking that it's going to be a, a real good deal. But you know, um, I've worked on five major catastrophes myself, starting with Hurricane Andrew, and man, that was a shock for me. I mean, it was incredible. It was surreal, almost. A very difficult work, both physically and emotionally. I mean, you actually become a victim when you're when you're there suffering along, right along with everyone else around you. Um, our first one, of course, on Andrew was just, it was crazy because it was certainly, I mean, we were near ground zero 
and uh, everything, including the, 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 the chain link fences that uh, go down the freeway, were just laying flat. And I just, I just couldn't believe that, that there could be that much damage. It's kind of like the uh, mother of all restoration losses. It's the pinnacle of our careers. You know, we, we, we really do try to make a difference in, in the face of an indescribable loss, and you almost feel helpless, you know, kind of. But I think you've got to be a little crazy to go after this kind of work. Right. Uh, it, it takes capital. It takes contacts, uh, uh, lots of patience. But, you know, financially and emotionally, it, 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 it has been well worth it for us to do it. Uh, my brother Bob and I uh, were involved in the, the Great Missouri River flood of '93, and mm-hmm. Chicago Loop flood, and the Grand Forks floods and fires, Hurricane Fran, lots of other hurricanes. And right now, uh, Bob and my son are in the Cayman Islands, uh, restoring the damage from a little micro hurricane strike came by, and I didn't even hardly make the news. And uh, but they're down there doing that. Now he's thinking he might want to move there. He said, "It's." Par-. I said, "How come?" He said, "It's paradise." <laughs> well, I guess it is. But uh, yeah, we. Uh, the, 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 don't get me wrong. I'm not saying don't try to do cat work. I think it's very necessary and very needed. But it does take quite an investment, and sometimes you got to wait a couple of years before we get the next round of hurricanes or whatever. It's just nice to be involved and be available for people when, when they need this because when it does happen, there's so much to do. It's just incredible. You know, I, I've got a little message you can give Bob next time you talk to him. It, it may be paradise, but it's not heaven. And <laughs> there's a real <laughs> big difference. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, because I don't know if they have hurricanes in heaven, and you know it's great when you live there, and so on and so forth, until it's you know your house or your condo or your apartment that uh, you know that suffers that damage. I understand that one time you did a pretty interesting project. Was that an Air Force base, or you know you got involved with some flooded aircraft or whatever? Can you tell the listeners a little about that? Yeah, yeah, I, I remember. I had an article in CNR magazine about it, a feature cover story on it. Uh, called Rescuing the Rescuers. And uh, this was the Missouri Air National Guard base uh, just across the river from St. Joe, Missouri. And, um, boy, we went out there, and, and Bob and I, and we had the big one-ton stretch van. And, and uh, I remember driving and trying to see the dashed line and the, and the white line on the side of the road. The water was coming in the floorboards, and we surveyed this base, the damage on this base, and... Uh, it was just incredible. So we, we ended up getting hooked up with that because the Air National Guard had been moved over to the college there in St. Joseph. And and uh, they gave us a shot uh, to try one building. Of course, we had a we had a little uh, desiccant trailer with a generator. And so we were the only only one bright spot on this whole base with no power. Mm-hmm. Had, to, had this thing going and had our generators, had our lights and things like that. And so we were kind of like our little, little uh, whatever base camp or something. And, yeah, we got involved in that, and by the time we were done, we spent three or four months there. And, of course, we had the, the military actually working for us as far as, I mean, they had the big equipment, and they, they just, their generators were failed because they were wet. But we pretty much uh, uh, directed them in the cleanup, and they let us do that. And it was, it was real successful. We had lots of people. And, um, uh, in fact, uh, I think it was General Pentagrass or something like that came to look at the base to see if they're going to close it, and we toured in through our drying chambers and our electronics restoration. We were restoring a lot of avionics, training avionics. I mean, they wouldn't put them in a plane and put them up, but they were tra- for trainers. 
and uh, restored a lot of electronics and things, and, and you know had it really set up real cool. And and the, the general toured that and said, you know, I think we're we're going to be able to save this base. And uh, so we were heroes then. And I mean, we had we had a cake party every Friday because they were going to stay in business and keep you know thousands of people employed in in that area. So. It was it was nice. We had a C-130. Uh, That's what they normally fly there, and they flew everything out that they could. But this one happened to be in a hangar with the electronics package out of it, and uh, so they couldn't move it. And of course, the prediction was to have uh, three or four feet of water, and they ended up with nine feet of water on this base. So they moved their computers up on the desks, which made them easier to pick up to throw away, I guess, but <laughs> if they got wet. And then this airplane, this C-130, which is really a neat experience to, to to decon and dry this thing. Of course, it's aluminum and metal, and uh, but the manufacturers were just all over us uh, as far as, you know, your temperature uh, variance is this and that, and this is the humidity and maximum, the maximum rate of changes and things like that. It was really cool because they had all the specs on it. And we got the, got the plane cleaned up and cleaned the HVAC system in it, which was kind of neat. And um, got them back in business. They did have a snake in the nose. Uh, <laughs> that's kind of an interesting story. They had a dug on uh, a black snake, I think it was. You know, if anybody's ever been in a large flood, uh, you'll see fish stuck in chain link fences right. and I mean, just all kinds of weird stuff. But uh, there was actually a black snake in the nose cone on this C-130. And it was real difficult to convince guys that they should go on in. <laughs> and, uh, and, and it was it was kind of funny because well, one of the guys said, well, hey, we got, uh, I don't remember what his name was, but he was actually one of his hobbies or whatever was a snake charmer. Mm-hmm. So he went in there, and I don't know what he did, told, him, told the snake he loved it or something. I don't know what the charmers do. And uh, threw it in the gunny sack and, uh, and brought her out. Everybody cheered. Wow. <laughs> we went ahead and finished restoring the plane, but that was kind of interesting. You know, every time uh, that, that I, and, you know, our, our paths have certainly crossed because we surfed together at RIA and been at different events and, and so on and so forth. But, um, you know, every time I see you, I, I imagine this, uh, pin on your lapel. It's a blue and uh, gold pin, and it says CMH, Certified Mechanical Hygienist. And I know that you're really proud of the designation. And can you tell us what is a CMH and what do they do? Yeah, yeah. Well, c- actually, Cliff, I ordered that from uh, from Taiwan. They made it for me. And I <laughs> no, just kidding. Um, the Certified mechanical, mechanical Hygienist is like the far as I'm concerned, is like the pinnacle of uh, the trade in, in, in air duct cleaning and then furnace and air duct cleaning. It, it deals primarily with commercial losses, uh, but it takes it to a higher level than just a duct cleaning. Uh, uh, member Davidge uh, Warfield, a lot of folks know him, sure. uh, was my mentor in this thing. And of course, I, I took uh, uh, the training actually out of your place in, in Pennsylvania. And uh, uh, Davidge was the president of NADCA, and he came to ASCR at the time and uh, and started this Mechanical Systems Hygiene Institute and developed it. And, and its whole sole purpose was to, you know, let's get serious about this. We're not just duck suckers. We're not just beating on it with a screwdriver, and we're not doing $99 specials. 
we've got an important job here because uh, that everyone, well, a lot of folks know that the the mechanical system in a building is like the lungs of the building. I mean, it's very important. It's part of the air quality, a significant part of the air quality of the, of the building. And the more important air quality becomes, uh, it seems, the more need there is for this. And so it's more than cleaning. It's it, it's it's considering the I, was is it designed as it should be now? Have they changed the purpose of the building? They put a lot of cubicles in. Does it need to be refurbished? Are there rusty parts, plug drain pans, uh, bent coils, dirty coils, insulation that needs to be replaced uh, because it's fragmenting and blowing you know uh, uh, fiberglass insulation particles all over everybody. You know every uh, the, the systems have been around for well, 50 years or so. And most of them have never been cleaned. They've never been looked into. And, you know, the maintenance for, for the maintenance guy is consists of changing the, the filter. And uh, that just doesn't do it. And they're starting to age. And there's going to become a greater and greater need for us that, that who understand both the cleaning and the mechanical uh, hygiene portion of it and keeping these systems running. I think it's a very important uh, and yet out-of-sight, out-of-mind type of thing. You walk into somebody's house or business, and they think that their HVAC system consists of those little uh, rectangular things they see in the floor or the ceiling. And, you know, in the, in the background, you've got all of these tubes and ducting and things all that do it, and then the great big old plant that's making the heat and the cooling. And and so, yeah, it's kind of a, it's an education process is what it is, but very proud to be a, a CMH. Uh, there aren't many of us. Um, and I don't know if RIA is bringing that program back or what they're doing with it right now, but but you bet I'm proud of it. Uh, I'm, I'm, uh, it took a lot of work, and uh, I felt like one of the founders of the pioneers of it. I wasn't, but I was there in the early beginnings, and and I'm, um, I think I've branched out from there now, and I consider myself to be an indoor air quality expert. Many may take exception, but I think um, we are what we want to be and what we study and what we learn. Well, no, I think you're acknowledged uh, certainly as being uh, an expert not only in uh, disaster repair and restoration, but also indoor air quality and HVAC system cleaning. Jim, we just ask you to stay with us. We're going to stop for halftime. And um, I've got an announcement that I'd like to make. On Wednesday, March 4th, 2009, which corresponds to Thursday, March 5th, 2009, the Restoration Industry Association will be holding an international wildfire webinar. Cleanup and repair following a wildfire disaster is much different from a single house fire. Lessons applied from the experiences of restoration contractors worldwide in these disasters invariably saves time, money, and frustration when they're called upon to bring back devastated communities. RIA is sponsoring a free webinar for Australian restoration and insurance professionals to share experiences between U.S. and their Australian counterparts. And they're going to share the many lessons learned uh, surrounding California wildfire restoration. As a matter of fact, contractors in California who've had considerable experience dealing with these fires uh, have similar 
climate, similar concentrated populations, have an overabundance of deadfall, and Southern and Central California experience communities frequently experience these types of disasters. The webinar will feature two experienced wildfire restorers who will each offer a 30-minute presentation on critical lessons learned in their post-disaster work in California. It's going to be followed by a question and answer segment. Uh, these shared insights and experiences should be helpful to Australian contractors and claims professionals as they prepare to sort through the work ahead. Registration is free. Simply go to www.restorationindustry.org, click the education on the top bar, and follow the link to the register. Uh, let's uh, see if Dr. Dieter has any comments on the first half of the show. Uh, yeah, well, I, uh, as you know, I'm I'm not very good at duct cleaning, but I was very good at designing industrial ventilation systems, and I think Jim just touched on it. In many instances, and I got called into several jobs where somebody had screwed up before me, and um, it appeared to me that in many instances the ventilation system was like an afterthought. Oh, we have beautiful rooms, we have this and this and this, and um, uh, maintenance uh, usually was a problem. I, I asked people, so who is in charge of that? And they looked at me bewilderedly. And then somebody said, oh, yeah, we change the filters once in a while. And I said, is there a lift or something like that? And, I mean, an industrial ventilation system is not very different from a residential or a ventilation system or a or office building. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it has a fan, it has ductwork, it has filters and so on. But uh, yes, you do have to have maintenance. And I think a lot of problems of indoor air quality could be eliminated by having a good maintenance system in, in place. It has to be in writing. I tell the people, I said, put it in writing. I want to know who did it, when, and they initial it, and they date it. And it's tough to find. And Jim knows that, too. And I said, uh, where are the drawings of your ventilation system? And I said, they look at you. And I said, what do you mean, drawings? And we don't have any. And who is in charge of it? Oh, Joe does it once in a while, and then Jim, and then Jack. So that is a problem. And... And I, I, I think it just takes education to say, hey, guys, this is something you got to you know, watch out for. you got to take a look at it and uh, take care of it. It, 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 it. it doesn't do it by itself. Okay. I think it's a very, very good point. All right, let's go ahead and resume our interview. Jim, have you ever done any expert witness work? And if such, uh, would you mind discussing just general details of the case with our listeners? Yes, I am. In fact, well, I've been on several right now. I just happen to have two cases going. <coughs> Excuse me. And, you know, they're the typical thing. The customer places the blame for a property loss on somebody other than themselves. And sometimes it's even on the restoration contractor, which is a real problem. Uh, in, 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 in doing this, this expert witnessing work, I mean, it really, my job's easy. All I need to do is point out the industry standards and validate that the contractor followed them or didn't follow them, as the, as the case may be. And, uh, and, and it's pretty much uh, there's some opinion involved in that sort of thing. There's a few areas that you have to 
be careful of, of doing things. Like, I, you just can't sit down and write an email to an attorney and say, well, here's my opinion, because it becomes part of the record. And, and, and it is discoverable, they call it, where they can the other side can actually demand to have all writings and, and things like that, which includes emails. So a little bit more difficult. A lot of phone work is done in the, in the beginning just to kind of um, get the, uh, the basic direction you're going and your thoughts and things like that. And, well, in this particular case, I, I made four different sets of, of bids to restore this property. Um, what had happened is they had a sewer back up, a sewage flood, and, and uh, they felt it was from a fella irrigating next door. And by golly, uh, uh, it ended up having the sewer back up, and they did basically nothing. Um, the customer called the health department, and they said, well, you know, chlorine bleach is a pretty good contact disinfectant. And so she was freaking out. Her husband was in Alaska working, and boy, before you know it, she had gallons of that straight bleach poured all over everything in the basement. And, you know, it was, it was a real bad deal, and, and so now we're trying to sort it all out and see what should have happened according to the industry standards and, and that type of thing, and I'm sure it's all going to work out, but, you know, there's always someone thinks that they're, not always, but often people think they're being wronged by someone else, and, uh, and when it's the restoration contractor, I definitely sit up and pay attention because uh, that's the... Uh, you know, people like to blame you. It doesn't matter if you did anything wrong. You just happen to be there at the wrong time, and they're going through the grieving process from their loss, and they're uh, they're picking something to lash out at, and, and often it's, it's the restoration contractor. Living in uh, rural Montana, do you have many opportunities to do consulting and obtain a fee for your advice? Well, you know, not as many as I'd like. <laughs> uh, it, it's interesting. Folks up here are do-it-yourselfers, uh, or maybe another way to put that is self-sufficient. Um, you know, we're the, we're, the, we're the people who police themselves with uh, no speed limits and that kind of thing. <laughs> but, but as such, they don't think they have much need for advice, much less paying for advice. So, but I'm out uh, every day educating people. Uh, I sample, I interpret the results, I design the protocols. I charge those who can pay and, and deliver premium results, of course. But for those who can't, I try to come up with a low-cost solution for them so that they can they can get by. I mean, not everyone can is well, certainly uh, rarely are you insured for a mold loss, for example, and people just can't cough up a lot of money uh, in a, in a lot of cases. Um, nor do they think they need to in a lot of cases. Uh, I mean, my dad one time I. I said, yeah, we got these, and this is way, way back. I said, we got these, these machines that are like air conditioners, only you don't put the heat outside, you put it, we call them dehumidifiers. I said, dehumidifiers? Well, all you got to do is open the window, because <laughs> we have such, we have a dry climate up here. Right, and everything. Right. Well, we, of course, we know why we use dehumidifiers, but, but that's basically the, the, the farmer's attitude up here. They can breathe moldy hay, and until it takes them out, they don't, uh, they don't think much about, uh, uh, wearing masks and things like that. So there are a lot of, lot of rural folks up here that, that just get the job. They, they do the get-or-done thing, too, you know. And um, uh, so, yeah, but I do. I do have uh, opportunities to consult here locally, not a lot of them. I do a lot of speaking uh, for you know, landlords' associations and that type of thing, trying to get the word out because people just don't know. And, and you know, if people are educated, 
uh, about something, then they can make informed decisions. I mean, it's, it's that way all over the world, I'm sure. But uh, no, I'm not making a living doing consulting. <laughs> you know, you'd mentioned uh, standards before. Uh, do you use any, I mean, do you always follow these standards or do, sometimes do you use some controversial tactics or strategies in your indoor environmental remediation business? Oh, Lord, no. I always follow the book by the letter. Just kidding. <laughs> uh, it's, it's impossible to do, and, and every remediator knows that. Um, uh, for example, uh, well, I guess the, one of the biggest... Con- I mean, I'm a bit of a, I don't know what you'd call it, but I'm a little different. I mean, you've met me, Cliff, mm-hmm. and there's a lot right. of folks that haven't. And uh, I I'm pretty much don't like the political stuff. And I pretty much, you know, what's what's real here? What's what's the truth? And and I think giving away my advice is probably considered very controversial. Um, but I think it's important to help others, uh, probably more important than money. Uh, but there is one thing uh, that I do that uh, the good book condemns. And I say good book, it's of course the S520. And that's sampling my own jobs. I hear everyone sucking in a breath. <laughs> I don't have a problem. I don't have any problem with that. <laughs> oh, good. Okay. Well, some people really do, and you, you know, depending on the situation, I, I I often pull my own samples after a job just for peace of mind to know whether my guys are doing the right thing and, and all of that. But um, up until a couple of years ago, there was only a handful of of us IEPs, I guess you'd call them, who could do this kind of work here in Montana, and getting somebody to sample for you was just about impossible. It really was. I mean, they just weren't around, and, and they were weeks and weeks out in, in, in being able to come, and, and you just can't go, you know, all right, Mrs. Johnson, we're going to have to move you out for three weeks while we take your samples and see if it's safe for you. It, it ain't going to happen. So um, that's that's when I got into that years ago. And, and more recently, uh, there's there's a third party here in town, and I haven't checked some of my jobs. Sometimes a client will ask to check a job. Sometimes it's an insured job, rare, and the, the adjuster will want a third uh, party opinion, which is great, you know. Um, but, you know, so, uh, people always ask me, well, Jim, that's, isn't that a conflict of interest? And I always respond with, not if you're honest. <laughs> and that's the truth. If you're a businessman, you can screw a customer, and, 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 and it's a bad thing. You can find a way to not do what you're supposed to do. So it all comes down to the, the, the owner-manager. I mean, if you're an honest businessman or a business person, uh, and your people are honest and they're trained to, uh, to have high ethics, uh, there should be no conflict of interest in that. So. You know, one of the challenges I, I've always had is with, when there's only limited insurance coverage. You know, many states have a five or a $10,000 limit for a mold claim. And, you know, if you're bringing in, uh, you know, someone to pull samples and, and run a pump from some distance away, uh, you know, it, it eats significantly into that small amount of money that, that's available. And I think, well, you know, on a limited budget, I really don't have any issues with it. You know, on a larger project, uh, you know, then I, I might have a different opinion. But you used the term good book, and I, I kind of like that term. You know, what role did you play in the development of the good book, the latest version of the IICRC S520 Motor Mediation Standard? You know, my life has been a series of surprises and, and, and wonderful opportunities and things that just seem to happen to me. And uh, uh, I really, I don't know why or how, but, but uh, um, 
well, originally, uh, ASCR had sent me as a representative mm-hmm. of the environmental chair to uh, to to sit in on the thing, and and finally I got to go from the peanut gallery to the big table and and all of that, and uh, I was I was on the committee on the first writing. We published it in 2003, and was the co-chair of the subcommittee drafting safety and health chapter, mm-hmm. which got big big uh, review, rave reviews from OSHA, believe it or not. Uh, but during the first revision, uh, which has just been published, I was the uh, subcommittee chairman of the inspection and preliminary determination chapter, as well as the HVAC chapter. And then, to my surprise, and it was a surprise, I was asked to step in as chairman of the entire consensus body. And uh, it, it, was, it was incredible. It, it really was incredible. <laughs> the way I was, you know, and I... I I have to tell you, it was such a shock and an honor to be asked that, frankly, I was suspicious at <laughs> first. Uh, you know, I'm going, what is this? Are you, was I a plant or a whatever? I, honestly, I did. I thought, this can't be. I'm not qualified. And um, uh, especially since I was a remediator and a vocal one at that. I mean, uh, uh, being a remediator was... Uh, Who'd ever thought a remediator would actually get to be the chairman of this this thing? Because there were so many rumors and things going around. And and uh, looking back, though, I think leadership must have seen something in me that I couldn't see at the time. Uh, but really enjoyed the challenge. And, and boy, I am very very proud of the document. I think it's 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 a great great writing, and it is more remediator friendly than the original version. I think uh, it, it it's the blueprint for how to do it. You know, type of thing. So I, I'm real proud of it. For you. you know, oh, sorry. Good. Well, I w- I'm just going to say um, um, because you got to know though that that there were some low points and high points of this this S520 thing. Four years and eight months, uh, and 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 you ha- I want to tell you, I want to tell your listeners that uh, uh, I think maybe the low points were the countless hours tediously dealing with counterproductive issues. Uh, formal appeals, arguing for hours over a few words, jumping through hoops to try and qualify for uh, for the ANSI uh, certification. And, you know, sometimes it felt like I was volunteering to be in a war. You know, it, it was it was stressful. But, boy, the high points, I mean, simply being recognized and thanked in front of my peers was just wonderful. Um, uh, they made me a, a shadow box and and uh, with a copy of the 520 in it and a big brass plaque on it and everything and, and uh, brought me up uh, on stage at the uh, uh, c- Connections down in, in Las Vegas uh, last year. And, uh, geez, I just, you know, that's all that a volunteer needs is, is for somebody to say, hey, thank you. We recognize you as, as, as and recognize the work you put into this because it was literally thousands of hours. But plus it's a damn good book. I mean, you know, uh, my fellow committee members uh, spent as much time as I did putting themselves into the standard, and we, we tried to make it the very best we could and, and tried to eliminate the politics and to, to get this thing out to people. And if you haven't seen it, I'd, I'd really encourage you to try to, try to, try to see it because it's, it's got some real good things in it. It's all new compared to the, the original version. Um, I guess there's a team now of instructors who are out teaching the update courses. Did you handpick those guys, Jim, or um, you know, were you involved with that selection process at all? You know, 
I've heard that there's a, in fact, we get emails daily about it, that there's a, a group uh, that are, they're holding these sessions all across the country. And I did uh, have the opportunity at the uh, Connections Convention, uh, this most recent one down in Vegas, that uh, uh, to be an instructor for the one-day special course that we held on the, on the S520 and had a wonderful time. Mm-hmm. And there was a few of us there, well, quite a few of us there, uh, helping out with it. But uh, as far as the ones that are going on right now, you know, I didn't get the opportunity to be involved in that uh, or choosing the people. I kind of wanted to continue to help getting the word out about it, but it just wasn't meant to be, you know. Um, yeah, I actually had a, a text question uh, from one of our listeners, and I guess what they wanted to know was whether or not these instructors are vol- – well, you may not know the answer to this, and you know that, that, that's okay. But I guess what the listener would like to know is whether or not the instructors for these continuing education courses are strictly volunteers who receive reimbursement for their expenses or whether or not they receive some additional financial compensation. You know, I don't know what the financial arrangements are, but I can't imagine anyone putting more time into this project as a volunteer. There was so much invested by the people who wrote it. So I just, I, I, you know, four years and eight months is a long time, and I'm guessing the instructors are paid for their time, and as they should be, uh, they're, 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 uh, they have to be able to, to make money. I mean, I'm right. probably the only guy that uh, doesn't, required to be paid to do anything. <laughs> right, right, right. No problem there, and I appreciate your candor. Uh, do you have any good industry war stories for our listeners? They, they tend to always like the war stories. Well, I know it, and, and that's what we talk about at conventions and, and uh, seminars and things, uh, because we, we like to relate to each other in, in knowing that we're all in the same boat. We all do the same thing, and we all face the same challenges, and sometimes we can learn from each other. Um, in my war stories, I guess, over 30 years, I've got a lot of them, but they consist mainly of dodging bullets. I am the luckiest guy I know, uh, I tell you. Well, for example, it wasn't too long ago, uh, one of my car service reps called me, and, and he just needed to ask me how much to charge. And I'm thinking, well, geez, that's kind of a basic question. Well, he gone out on uh, what he thought was a regular carpet cleaning job, and he found the reason the customer wanted it cleaned is because he had just scraped off all of his acoustic ceiling. Mm-hmm. And the kid walked in, and there was this white stuff all over the floor. It was just right. thick. And he says, I, I, I got to charge extra for this, don't I? Right, right. I says, whoa, first I think maybe we should put a little in a Ziploc bag and take it in and test it. So we had it sampled, and sure enough, it was it had a lot of asbestos in it, as do many blown on ceilings. Uh, and, boy, if we'd have tried to vacuum that up, can you imagine the mess we'd have had, we would have been blowing asbestos all over that house, all over everything. He, the, the owner had already made a mess. So we backed out of that one and got him hooked up with an asbestos abatement contractor, and his carpet cleaning cost him several thousand dollars. Right, right. But, yeah, people will do that. People, homeowners will do that type of thing, and, and you've, got to, you've got to be pretty darn careful uh, because they really don't know at the time what they're dealing with, and that's what we're supposed to know. We're supposed to know that if there's a there, there's a chance there could be hazardous materials, for example, lead, uh, asbestos, and that, that sort of thing. But yeah, I, you know, there's lots of different war stories, and that, you know, experience and seasoning is, I guess, what's come of of the last 30 years here, and uh, that's the stuff we want to share with people. 
What's the funniest thing that has ever happened to you while in the industry? I think me showing up for work every day. That's <laughs> <laughs> pretty funny. Uh, actually, uh, it does take crazy people to do this kind of work. I mean, you know, uh, anybody that's in the industry knows darn well that that it takes a, it's a special breed of cat that, that, that you can get that really gets off on having their plans changed in the morning when they come into work or to be in the middle of a project and to be pulled away on an emergency service call. I mean, it's kind of almost like the medical trade where uh, the emergency responders and things actually have a sort of uh, adrenaline rush or whatever. So, yeah, all of my people are pretty crazy or they don't get to work here. And uh, and so there's always funny things going on. You know, it's it's pretty cold in Montana, not nearly as as cold as it is back on the East Coast, but it it gets chilly. And uh, <laughs> this big fella went out, and we've got a, a chain link fence gate out here. We store some vehicles in, and and the doggone lock, it's a, just a typical padlock, was 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 froze up, and uh, he couldn't get the key in the darn thing, and. He just didn't know what to do, so so he thought, well, maybe if I if I like breathe on it, well, that didn't work, and so so he thought, well, oh, my mouth is warm, I'll just kind of put it in my mouth, kind of you know, put my tongue on it, and well, everybody knows, you know, put your tongue on cold metal, but he sure as heck did, and and uh, it 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 was just agonizing to watch the guys standing around laughing at him. <laughs> I mean, they had to they had to soak in the moment, you know. They finally got some warm water and melted him off of the darn thing, but he didn't do that again. And God, I just the other day I had a female employee. She's she's something else. Uh, uh, she was she got caught in a dog door. <laughs> yeah. I'm not kidding. She, she's trying to, now they go. They could always, if their mother, if her mother locked the house, she could always get in. She was going over to see her mom or something. Nobody was there, and they could always get in by reaching through the dog door, or whatever. But uh, maybe she had too many pizzas or something. But she got stuck in this dog door, and uh, and she's there for like two hours. She finally <laughs> calls on her cell phone. Did not want to call us. She says. Don't tell anybody. Just bring a saw, bring a chop saw, saws all whatever, and get me out of this store. <laughs> so we had to give her a hard time on the phone and uh, text her and say, "What's that, Lassie? Timmy's caught in the dog door." Type of thing. <laughs> but we finally got her out. She didn't want to call the, the fire department. I mean, what would they say? But yeah, so yeah, my people do some pretty crazy things, and boy, that keeps it interesting, and, and it makes me look forward to coming in. Um, are you concerned about? being in the disaster restoration business in a rural area in a deeply down economy? No, no, absolutely not. You know, <clears throat> every day the news is really scary and all that, and then uh, when, you, when you hear what's going on, $4 trillion and this and that, uh, it doesn't affect Montana quite as fast and quite as deeply as, as it does the rest of the nation. But uh, but uh, the industry in general, I mean, I, I'm not worried at all. In fact, think about it. We're in the stuff happens business. That's not what we say. But uh, and stuff keeps on happening. I mean, it's. I think it's recession resistant because uh, uh, there's no timetable for disasters. They just continue to happen. Uh, most of the work's paid for by the largest, most successful companies on earth. So. Uh, <laughs> Well, just carpet cleaning, for example, we're seeing that actually increase because people are, n- are now deciding they're going to wait one more year or they're going to wait one more cleaning until they replace their carpeting. Uh, you know, I'm sure it's the same with cars. They're going to keep their cars a little longer, but in, in our business, cleaning and maintenance, uh, boy, now's the time to buckle down and, uh, as far as consumers go 
and make your stuff last longer. And in order to do that, you have to maintain it professionally. So, yeah, I, I, I think this is probably one of the few businesses uh, to be in during times like this. I mean, it's, it's been good. Have any ex-employees tried to compete with you? Wow, that would be so rare, wouldn't it? <laughs> you know, I see uh, air conditioning contractors, electricians, and, and it happens, I think, to everybody. Um, for some reason, I know what the reason is. It's, it's me. That's that's the, the, the problem here. I'm very, very trusting. And, um, well, let's put it this way. I, I'm in a market, a little over 100,000 folks, and I've got three major competitors, two of which I've trained plus two more that have actually gone out of business. I guess those guys didn't listen to me when I told them to always put the customer first, you know. But, um, uh, yeah, I ha oh, I do have one more slogan for you. Um, insist only on AmeriClean, trained and certified competition. <laughs> <laughs> because they know what they're doing. I train them. What the heck? But, yeah, yeah and, you know, I, I have to tell you something. This will happen to a good deal of folks out there listening um, and and. and you just have to let it roll off your back. It'll feel like a knife, and it'll feel like they're turning it uh, when it initially happens to you. But you've got to get over it right away. Realize that there's plenty of, of business out there for everybody that's doing a good job. And if actually, if you can find it in your hearts to forgive them and to actually support them, uh, I think you'll be better off because, you know, if there's karma around, it'll get them, and you don't have to be the one to, to dish it out. Just keep on trucking and, and do the best you can. That's, that's what my motto is. You know, Nietzsche had a motto, too. If it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> All right. Well, I think what's going to happen is we're going to pause now for our roundup, and before that, we'd like to thank our sponsors. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IEQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising informational available at ieconnections.com. Dryease Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dryease is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at jondon.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their products and services. Okay, Dieter, uh, final comments or questions from you, please. Uh, well, just a little comment. You know, I, you know that I'm a consultant uh, sometimes, and uh, it's not how I make a living, but uh, still there is some income over there. And would I like to be uh, paid for my time? Yes, I think I should be. You know, I put in 40 years of experience at a time when I didn't get paid a heck of a lot of money. And um, 
you know, I, I, I see absolutely nothing wrong that, that I'm getting paid, and uh, I will have, <laughs> I have some work done on my telephone line. And what is that? Uh, a technician from Verizon, but the first 15 minutes is $90. Right. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, to shake my hand and say hello. Uh, and I said, hey, wait a second, where the hell am I? And I think it's, on, on the other hand, it's one, if you do everything for free, something that costs a little bit of money uh, appears to be better than when you say, I do it for free. And I certainly would not like to spend my time and in my car with my gasoline and drive around, uh, could possibly be in an accident, and I said, hey, I'm not going to charge for it. No, I do charge for it. And... Um, now, so far, in, in, in my experience as a consultant, I never, ever had a problem. I did have a couple of problems that people didn't pay me. <laughs> right. Of course, that never, ever happened to anybody but me. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, no, I mean, yeah, I'm, I, I'm, I'm certainly not an expert in, in, in remediation and so on. I, even though I have seen it, I'm, I know what's going on and I know the issues. But that certainly is not my, uh, my area of expertise. But I think a good consultant ought to be paid. I just have a question for Jim. What is the biggest or most important lesson learned during your tenure in, a, in the, the disaster repair or IAQ industry? Hmm. What did I learn from it? Man. So the biggest or most important lesson? Uh, oh, the most important lesson, yeah. Uh, I think to be true to your and, and and really, you gotta you gotta you gotta look at yourself in the mirror every morning when you get up and and all of that and and um, uh, that that's a that's a tough question because there's so much so many lessons out there but when it all boils down to it it's it's uh, you know are are you doing something good are you helping people I I think that's the, the biggest lesson that it, that has taught me um, I just want to say one more thing too. Um, I want to put. I want to. I want to do more. I, I just want to do more. I want to put more time into consulting on a national scale. I want to help with more cat jobs, uh, more expert witnessing, more training, more helping new business owners in our industry because that's what that's what gets me off. And we all have our own buttons, and 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 mine is definitely. Uh, it sounds it sounds so uh, whatever, but it's true. I do like to help people, and uh, I really that's my reward. I think. I think you anticipated my question. I was going to ask you what you saw yourself doing, uh, you know, in the future or exit strategy or whatever, and I think that you just kind of answered it for us. Well, Jim, is there anything you'd like to add to the interview, anything that we missed, anything that you want to correct the record on or anything like that? You know, I don't think so. I don't think I made too many mistakes. I'm sure a lot of people may take exception to that. But uh, I just want everybody to be safe and be happy. That's, that's what life's all about. I hear you. What's the best way for our listeners to contact you? Well, if you send a regular mail, it's going to cost you a little more now because postage is going up, and the stagecoach wheel might break. So <laughs> I would suggest email. Let, let's do the email thing. It's jim at americleancorporation.com. That's A-M-E-R-I-C-L-E-A-N, AmeriClean, and the word corporation all spelled out, Jim at AmeriClean Well, Jim, thank you very much for joining us this afternoon. Uh, before we sign off, I'd like to thank my co-host, uh, Joe Hughes, the wingman Chris Boisel, 
our guest host, environmental Annie Ann Kowalecki, and our technical director, Dr. Dieter Weil. But most importantly, you, our growing group of loyal listeners, please come back and join us next Friday at noon for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production. Thank you.